my name is Mike Diedrich, and I'm a member of uh, Veterans for Peace Chapter 92. And <clears throat> this is the Veterans for Peace radio show, broadcast on KODX 96.9. Veterans for Peace, our statement of purpose is, we having dutifully, dutifully served our nation do hereby affirm our greater responsibility to serve the cause of world peace. To this end, we will work with others towards increasing public awareness of the costs of war, to restrain our government from intervening overtly and covertly in the inter internal affairs of other nations, to end the arms race and to reduce and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons, to seek justice for veterans and victims of war, and to abolish war as an instrument of national policy. To achieve these goals, members of Veterans for Peace pledge to use nonviolent means and to maintain an organization that is both democratic and open with the understanding that all members are trusted to ask in the best interest of the group for the large purpose of world peace. We urge all people who share this vision to join us. Uh, this radio program is, is archived, as I mentioned, on KODX 96.9, and uh, our past uh, episodes of the show can be uh, accessed through their website. With me today is Mike McPherson, former National Director of Veterans for Peace. Uh, our guests are for this show will be um, Kelly Wadsworth and then Ellen Barfield. Kelly will be our first first guest, and we're going to be talking about her bio, biography and introduction to because she's never been on the radio program before. Well, this is Michael McPherson, and thank you for listening to us. We're on this um, radio station every fourth Wednesday of the month. Um, this is like our, I think it's our fourth episode. Um, we didn't do one uh, last month because of the shutdown and the COVID virus. Um, so before we get into much into anything else, um, I think we want to share a little bit what's happening in our lives. So how's everything going with you, Mike, when it comes to how the COVID uh, virus is impacting you? It's uh, impacting just staying home. My wife's got, uh, she's kind of at risk, and I, as I am, I'm 75. She's got uh, uh, congestive heart failure and uh, um, AFib, which are more or less under control, but she's, she's at risk. So we don't go out. Uh, I, I take the dog out twice a day to the parks, which is a pretty, pretty safe sort of thing, and get some groceries uh, um, delivered. We're lucky enough to actually have the means to have that happen. A lot of people aren't and have to put themselves at risk by going to stores and uh, exposing themselves potentially to the uh, virus. Uh, right. But we're, we're doing fine, and uh, uh, so far, so good. Do you know anyone who's fallen victim in terms of dying? from the virus uh do i know anybody who's been affected by it yeah that's died from it uh no i don't uh, that's good. Not, not personally but uh uh because of my age group a lot of my friends are in this this uh, uh, more vulnerable category right but uh, so far some of their they're good but they're also being very careful it's really distressing to see something like that happened a, a, a day or a yesterday or day before in olympia where these people are all congregating and uh, want to not practice safe distancing and then thereby be putting all of us at more of a risk it's safe distancing is uh, critical right i totally agree and so it is unfortunate as far as my family goes my wife and i um we're in our mid-50s um so we're not as vulnerable although i do have ms and i'm not exactly sure how the virus impacts ms 
So, you know, we're staying home, of course. Um, we go to the grocery store sometime. We go out for walks, but uh, my wife's working from home. Uh, financially, we're doing okay. I didn't have a job before this anyway, so I do have some concerns because, you know, I just moved here last year from St. Louis after stepping down from uh, the Veterans for Peace um, executive director position. So I am concerned about when the economy starts to pick up exactly where I'm going to fit in. I was concerned about that already. So this, that makes it even more of a concern. And fortunately, my wife um, works for King County. Uh, she's been working at home for the past three weeks or four weeks, however long time King County's had people work from home. My mother is 85. So she is staying in, of course. And my two sisters are, they're doing okay. So most of my family's doing all right. And, and in terms of jobs, they're, they're doing okay too. So I feel, we all feel very blessed. But my, um, as far as knowing people who have died from the virus, um, I don't know anyone. And my wife knows of people through other people, like one person removed. Um, so fortunately, it hasn't directly impacted us in that way. And, you know, I pray um, and meditate that it will not. Um, and then last thing I guess I'll say as far as people not taking it as serious as they should, um, I do want to say to our listeners, uh, please take this serious. Uh, continue the social distancing. Um, go to the CDC and the World Health Organization for information. Don't take secondhand information. If you think something sounds right, do research to find out because there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation out there and it can get us, get you hurt. So please um, follow the science. And I think most of the people who are not taking this serious enough don't follow the science and they've not read any history about what plagues and what these kind of viruses can do. They can kill millions of people. Um, and, the, and the reason that this is so dangerous is because it's new we don't have a vaccine for it. It's not like the flu in that we have a vaccine for the flu. So more people would die from the flu if we didn't. That's what's going on with this. And we don't understand this yet. So please take this as serious as, as possible. Um, and hopefully in a year or so, and I say that because we have to wait for a vaccine, uh, things can get back to not to, to the same way because it's not going to go back the same way but we can get back to somewhat of a, a normal way of life. So we'll see. Yeah. A, a lot of it will depend on, on the testing capability in addition to the vaccine. Right. And that's really uh, the Trump administration and the other health uh, and the people who are sort of uh, denying COVID deniers uh, are, you know, you could probably charge them with manslaughter for their negligence and incompetence and this sort of thing. But, uh, testing is what we need, and then ultimately a vaccine, and that's the only thing. And distancing—that's the only thing you can do. If you've got a face mask, use it. I—I was—I uh, don't know if you can see my uh, sewing machine in the background there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I've sewed, sewed a few masks, and uh, I was thinking of appearing on the program with a uh, mask on, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not. <laughs> So just for the listeners to understand, um, Mike and I are doing this through Zoom. Um, so we're pre-recording the show because we can't go into the studio. And uh, once again, taking this very serious, doing the social distancing, and this is probably how we'll do the show for some time. 
And I guess at this point, we should go ahead and, and get to the show. And um, our first guest is going to be Kelly Wadsworth, as was said earlier. Um, so here we go. Thank you, Kelly. Kelly Wadsworth for appearing on our uh, radio program, Veterans for Peace radio show. And uh, just as some background to introduce you, um, can you give us a brief bio and uh, uh, what do people, what do we, what would you like people to know about you? Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on the show. It's good to be here. And my name is Kelly Wadsworth and I live here in Seattle and I serve as a Presbyterian minister, and I served in the United States Army in the Guard and in the Reserve for 10 years, from 2001 until 2011. And after I got out and I did a lot of reflecting and processing of my experiences and weaving those into my own understanding of faith and my own theological training, and um, one of the places that I found myself really interested in is the question of if we can find better ways, better ways to relate internationally, better ways to solve problems. And then that led me to Veterans for Peace and the peace movement, which has been a, a very valuable piece of life and activism over the past couple of years here in the Seattle area. Well, how did you learn about Veterans for Peace? I first learned about Veterans for Peace from Mike, who is interviewing me at the moment. Um, that was my very first entrance into Veterans for Peace. He was giving a presentation related to Veterans Day. Um, this must have been, I'm going to guess, four years ago, maybe yeah. even yeah. five. And um, at one at First Baptist Church in near downtown Seattle, and I had gone to the presentation he was giving and I hadn't really known that there had been a peace arm of the veterans organizations. I had, I was familiar with a number of the veterans organizations, both, both the, the longer term ones, um, but then also the more recent Iraq and Afghanistan specifically related ones. But I was not yet familiar that there was a peace movement within all of these and so I encountered Mike giving a presentation. At the same time, within my own self, I had been really wrestling with this question of, was, was that worth it? That I went on one deployment, which is not necessarily a lot compared to some of my other comrades, but it was enough to really provide a lot of fodder for me to reflect deeply on my own role as a minister, on my own role as a citizen. and. I was in the throes of really coming to a place where I didn't think that a lot of the things we were doing overseas were uh, either right or effective. Uh, that I, I was finding that I thought that they were neither, not, neither effective nor morally or ethically justified. And so 
I was right in a place of like wondering, what do I, what do I do with this? How do I live into this understanding um, of my own role in, in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars? And so that right at that moment was when I encountered Mike. And so I asked him a lot of questions about Veterans for Peace. And, and it took me a little while before I actually joined because I, I had thought I needed to come to a place of like a hundred percent, like a hundred percent pacifist orientation, which I was not yet there. Um, although I do think that is a legitimate and fully ethical position. I had not made it all the way there quite yet. And, and I thought that I needed to before I could join. Um, so Mike really took me under his wing and explained, no, you, you don't have to be all the way there. there there's a lot of different, places you can be. There's a lot of different shades of gray. And so with that, I joined Veterans for Peace really with the starting point of, I believe there needed to be less war. Uh, and that was that from that position was how I first began my entrance into Veterans for Peace. And then from there began to understand all of the different kinds of work they were doing and all the different ways that uh, we need to work more diligently for peace and to decrease our investments, both financial, our resources, our personnel, our efforts, our time, our thinking into war. Like if we can shift that into the projects of peace, that's something I want to be part of. Uh, I should also mention that Kelly is an elected board member for Veterans for Peace Chapter 92 having been drafted and Shanghai to that position, but she's willingly doing that. We thank you for that, Kelly. Uh, uh, without putting you too much on the spot, can you tell us a little bit sort of the uh, uh, paradox uh, conflict, if you want to call it, or dichotomy between a military chaplain and being in a war? Is that, yes. <laughs> that's a big question. <laughs> there is. Um, there, there is a dichotomy, and it's designed to be that way and military chaplains the the vast majority of them and the ones who are trained well are trained to hold that dichotomy um and and to be the containers of things that seem like they don't fit together well like they're they're not they're not military chaplains are not designed to really land on um one side or the other, they're really meant to wrestle with a lot of these difficult questions. So I served as an army chaplain and chaplains structurally function like medical professionals in that they both have a chain of command in the military, but they also have a civilian chain of command that they also report to and have some degrees of authority. Um, so you've got one foot in both camps at any given time. So you have one foot in the civilian world and one foot in the military world. And so you really live in this space where they blend together. Um, and, and so you, you wrestle, and I found myself wrestling a lot with what, what are we doing? Like during my deployment, what are we doing here? Why are we here? And is it based on reasons that are justified, that are ethical, and can those be articulated? Um, so in that, uh, in that, 
and temperamentally, I'm also one that really enjoys that kind of fruitful dialogue, like that challenge. Um, so I, so I really embraced it. Uh, but I was, what was really surprising to me was I was not the only one. It, it was not lost on many of my soldiers, the vast majority of whom conducted themselves in honorable ways that we all should be proud of. But, but many of them also um, really wrestled with the question of, is, is my work here? Are the sacrifices that are being made? Is the violence that's being inflicted necessary? Um, necessary in a global kind of way. Um, is, it, is it the only way? And because it's a pretty severe way, inflicting more violence is that's pretty much the end of the road. There's not many options after that. Uh, but many of them, even the youngest ones, were able to recognize that question. And then that is a question for deep processing upon return when one can kind of look back and, and have the time and the space to reflect whether or not that particular war, and then a very related question is whether or not war in general is, whether it accomplishes what we think it is going to accomplish. Um, And I think one of the very pressing questions in the 21st century is, is whether that is the case, not just in a utilitarian way, but is it, is it building what we want it to be building? Um, and in this in this new season of coronavirus, where there's really a new sense of connectedness, like we've known we've been a, a connected world for quite a long time, but I think this is just a another perspective on that that we really are connected in some significant ways, um, and whether our understanding of conflict has has really kept pace with that sense of connectedness among the world's people. Well, Kelly, um, what made you decide to go in originally? Originally, I was in graduate school on the East Coast. I started graduate school in 2000, and I graduated in 2003. So in that period of time, a number of things happened. Um, one of them was just the basic graduate school like career planning, like beginning to plan what one wants to do when one gets out. So I was in graduate school to be a pastor. So I was in seminary. And one of the things I knew that I didn't want to do right away, I was still in my 20s. I did not want to settle down in the traditional kinds of ways of like kind of settling into a job for a decade plus. And I still had a sense of wanting adventure in my profession. Um, So like many, the call of adventure and service really made military chaplaincy appealing to me at that time. Uh, and so we had a recruiter that would come to campus once a year. So there, there are um, military recruiters based on specialties. So there's specific recru- recruiters just for chaplains, and they go to seminaries and divinity schools around the country. So, um, and then there, there's a program called... Um, the, the chaplain corps, the chaplain candidate corps, it's got some different names in the different branches, but it's, it's basically, it's like ROTC, 
but for those who are in graduate school. So you go to school during the year, September through June, and then often in your summer times, you'll do military training with the idea that but all of these, all of this training will begin to uh, reach its conclusion around the same time that graduation from graduate school and completion of like off military officer school, which was chaplain school, like that those will start to kind of happen around the same time so that you can be ready to serve as a chaplain. So I was in graduate school really not wanting to settle down too quick after graduation, like wanting to embrace some sort of adventure. Like at the time I didn't have kids or a family. I was in my twenties. So wanting to still see some of the world. So that was, that sense of adventure really fueled it. I, I had not yet. Well, what's an important piece is I began working with the recruiter. It, it takes a number of months to get all your paperwork submitted. So I began that process in the summer of 2001. So my oath of office as an officer was December of 2001. So all my paperwork kind of found its way through from, it started with a peacetime army and then my oath of office was in a wartime military. So the timing was really something else. Like I could not have orchestrated that. Uh, and then to be on the East Coast in the greater New York area in seminary at that same time, and then to begin to see some of our great thinkers, some of our academics, there were a number of career Navy chaplains who were, um, who were there for a one-year schooling um, opportunity kind of in the middle of their careers to see all of these voices begin to come together and have and begin to wrestle and process with not just the events of 9-11, but what the response would be uh, as we all kind of shifted together into, a, into the post 9-11 world. That was how I came into the military. So uh, after you got in, you started off the National Guard and you were activated as a, as a National Guard unit that went, you were assigned to an infantry battalion, is that correct? Correct. So yeah. what was the, what was the, how much of a shock was that going from, from divinity school to a national guard uh, officer to actually a war zone as, and serving as a chaplain to a, an infantry battalion? Yeah, it, it, there, there's a big, there's a big cultural difference. Um, one of the things that was really helpful very early on was that a number of the chaplain leaders, so a number of, of those who were tasked with training the new chaplains, so they were very seasoned chaplains, they began to articulate very early on in our training that we would be going overseas. Like they didn't, they didn't say you might or your unit has a chance. Like they really prepared us. They were like, all of you will be overseas in like a very short amount of time. So that was very helpful in, I think, getting us, getting our mental thinking up and running pretty quickly. So kind of fast forward a few years, I finished my, all of my East Coast time. I finished graduate school and I moved back to Washington State, which is home, back to the Seattle area. 
And in 2007, my National Guard unit got word that we would deploy in 2008. So we began the preparations in 2007. In, two, in the summer of 2008 was when we left home. And, um, and there's something of a really, you begin to you begin to mix together units and people based on need and based on what the mission would be and so we ended up with some battalions i was a battalion chaplain so we ended up with some battalions that were smaller and then some battalions that ended up huge because they got a lot of different companies attached to them so in that process we divided up the chaplains so that there would be chaplains based on kind of accurate numbers like we didn't need we we had one we had one battalion that had over a thousand folks so it made more sense for them to have two chaplains and for some of the other smaller ones to combine so in that process i was assigned to what had what had been an infantry battalion and then was a combined arms battalion downrange um and and it was it was really it, it was amazing in that there were really some phenomenal folks there. Uh, it was challenging. It, it was challenging in the ways that it's always challenging for units to be in war zones. Right. Well, our time is winding down a little bit here. So before, before we finish the interview, we wanted to know how your life is with the pandemic, um, with you being a working mother and, you know, having to take care of your daughter and having to stay home and all that. Um, how, how are you being impacted? I would say it's definitely an impact and there's definitely a higher level of stress. I would also say that I've been a single parent for a number of years now and single parent life actually is wonderful training for pandemic life. <laughs> in the sense, in the sense that uh, it's uh, it's unrelenting, uh, and there's not necessarily days off when you need or want it. Um, there's not necessarily the kinds of support that you need or want when you need it. Uh, it's not that it's not out there, but it's not necessarily readily available. So, um, so in that, uh, I was I have been able to adjust and kind of just adjust everyone's schedule and really adjust my expectations as to what is possible. So uh, kids are all in one home, I'm working from home. So it's a pretty small space for a lot of folks to be working all at once. So we've developed some strategies that are helpful. Like one strategy is it's really best to only have one phone or Zoom call happening at a time. <laughs> so the, the kid, my kids have wonderful teachers who have set up um, the youngest one has circle time each day. The older ones have math. They have math lessons each day. So to try to stagger that. So I try not to schedule any work calls at the time that they also will have a teacher call. Because then we just get too much into the person on the call needs some degree of peace and quiet. Uh, but, it, but if another person's also trying to have a phone call, then it just doesn't always work. So that sometimes makes the day a little longer trying to stagger all these calls, but it's been a strategy that we have 
discovered works. Uh, so we're, we're doing many of the same things other folks are doing, trying to stay in touch with friends and family on the phone and on the internet. Um, you know, it's nothing like it is in person, like we need those human interactions. Um, but really hoping that there will be, there will be an end in some kind of way and we can return to some measure of more personal interactions. Right, right. And how many children do you have? I have three, a high schooler, a middle schooler, and an elementary schooler. Wow. So they, they, each, have, they each have some different um, academic and educational needs. Fortunately, my oldest is a ninth grader, so he's not facing the kind of academic kind of problems or challenges that like the 11th and the 12th graders are facing with graduation just, you know, yes. looming so close to them. Uh, and then my middle schooler, you know, the academic credit is, is it's a little looser in middle school. So, um, so in terms of their academic structure, I think the thing that really they miss the most, and I have now noticed is how much their school classrooms function as an extension of family. Mm. It offers opportunities for peer interactions and for engagement and like it's a structure that was so important to them so we make sure not to miss those opportunities online like that's more important than the academic piece at the moment for my brood i see okay well i think we should probably wrap it up i think um um we have to go um, so we have enough time for our next guest, but I uh, really am excited and appreciate you being on the show. And um, I think we look forward to having you on again. You brought up some uh, really deep thoughts there um, as you contemplated your role in the military as a chaplain, you know, your faith and beliefs and how it was compatible or not. And uh, I, that's like a show all by itself. Yeah. Well, thank you, Kelly. Uh, we also look forward to, as Michael said, talking to you again. One of the things that we're going to do down the road here is talk about uh, veterans' reaction to thank you for your service sort of thing. I'm sure that you've got quite a bit to say about that, as do some of our other veteran members. Uh, but that'll be a maybe for a show for Memorial Day and or Veterans Day around that theme. So thanks again and stay safe, Kelly. Thank you. It was good to be with you. All right. Diedrich, and I'm a member of Veterans for Peace Chapter 92 here in Seattle, and uh, this is uh, part of a segment of our radio show, our monthly radio show on Codex 96.9 in Seattle, and with us today is Ellen Barfield, who's a longtime activist, uh, member of War Resisters League, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and uh, uh, School of America's. Um, probably some things that I'm missing, but you've been been around for a long time, and thank you very much for being with us today. Um, thank you for having me. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm um, gonna, real quick, just want to thank Ellen as well. I've known Ellen. She's one of the first people I met, you know, in the long stream of people I've met in Veterans for Peace. And I'm I'm 100% sure I met her through David Klein, which I bring up every now and yeah. then. Yeah, so um, I just wanted to say publicly how much I appreciate you, all the work you've done. Um, you were national uh, vice president, I think, when uh, I met you. And, um, yeah, so just thank you for all the work and just hanging in there all these years. So thanks again. Thank you, Michael, and thanks very much for mentioning Dave. His portrait's hanging on my wall, and... He's one of those people I'm extremely honored to have been able to meet and work with in my life. Yeah. 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 Can you sort of give us some some background questions about uh, your time in the military and when did you join, what motivated you, and and how did you get out of that? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I joined in '77. In fact, it's almost it was early May that I went off to basic. So that's what. 43 years ago or something, 44 years ago, I think, almost exactly, which is kind of (laughs) weird. My husband at the time had joined out of high school without much other idea of what in the world he wanted to do with his life, and I had been, had uh, gotten a couple of years of college under my belt before he and I married. And I didn't feel like I could ask my parents for any more help with the school. They were able to help me just a little bit. Um, But being married and having two other siblings coming up behind me, I just felt like it was my responsibility. And so, oh, the military's offering college money. My husband got orders for Korea where I couldn't go anyway. So I thought, well, I'll get my training out of the way while he's over there, and then we'll hook back up. (laughs) That didn't happen. The the 48 months that I spent in the Army, I actually lived with my husband for 16, which sadly was pretty typical. But anyway, I joined the money, joined to get the money to finish college, and I got out after my four. I never intended to make a career of it. Since I had some college, there was some hope, and because they were doing a big push to get more women in right when I went in, There was my recruiter and several other people along the way. Oh, come on, you've got college. You can be an officer. But he wasn't an officer, and I didn't intend to stay in, so I didn't want to get into that political mess. I just did my time and got back out and went back to college. So what did you do? What did you train at? What was your MOS in the Army? 62B, heavy equipment mechanic, Interestingly enough, although I never worked with them, I was an actual member of the Corps of Engineers. My insignia was the little castle, which is their insignia. Yeah, yeah. Engineer equipment, forklift, scoop loaders, that kind of thing. The only thing that was a directly military piece of equipment was a mobile assault bridge. Big old boat on wheels, kind of like an overgrown duck, like those tourist boats they have in, in port cities. Well, there couldn't have been a lot of women mechanics in the Army. There weren't, but as I said, that was a time when they were really increasing the number of women. And it happens that when I was in basic training is exactly when we went over from still being wax, women's Army Corps left over from World War II, to be in just regular Army, which was absolutely as it should be. And for crying out loud, it took till May of 1977. Amazing. But it did. 
and being kind of a lover of history, I appreciate getting that experience of getting the old WAC insignia, hearing about WAC history, going to the WAC museum, la la la, you know. But it was totally appropriate that we just became regular members of the Army. And it happened that my training group in, in AIT at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, ugh, was in the woods in the state of misery. Yeah. Um, all of us regular Army were women. In fact, we all came from the same basic training company in Fort McClellan, Alabama. And the men were National Guards who were going back home. So it was a half-half class, and all of us women all went over together to Germany, not to the same duty station, but all went to Germany. So what did uh, your, your – we went in for the sort of the educational benefits and, uh, well, I suppose some training. Uh, you you got some decent – some sort of training, but what happened after the – or during the, your military time that led you to become uh, – uh, Veterans for Peace activist and uh, with other organizations? Well, even very early on, I had a real vague notion of wanting to do something about something, probably mostly environmentally. Um, you know, Earth Day wasn't too old. Earth Day's about to be 50 years old, so it was, what, maybe five years old or so back when I joined. And the 80s was was kind of a an activist time and in the late 70s that was beginning to cook up and so I I had some vague ideas but no earthly idea how to go about doing anything about anything. I had the very good fortune at my duty station in Germany. The bookstore was run by an officer's wife and I realize now that she was kind of a closet progressive. She had some pretty pretty good radical, uh, uh, radical is probably a little too far, but progressive anyway, magazines in the bookstore. I bought them, I read them, I joined some of the organizations who advertised in the back, like the Union of Concerned Scientists, who largely looked at nuclear weapons, Um, the American Civil Liberties Union, of course, just general civil rights, Uh, National Organization for Women, Feminism, And so I slowly started absorbing some pretty good info. And after I got back out of the Army and went back to college, I just sort of had my antennae up for anything. And Northwest Texas in the panhandle, Amarillo, Texas, is not exactly a hotbed of radicalism. (laughs) So there wasn't a lot there that I could just latch on to. But I was interested. I went ahead and finished my undergraduate degree, headed off to veterinary school, which is just an aside. I didn't stay there. Uh, It happens that as I was heading off to veterinary school that very summer, 1984, there was this amazing thing, a peace camp, and it was held at the Pandex Nuclear Weapons Plant, which was right outside Amarillo, Texas, where I lived. And, wow, that's pretty radical. And I didn't go to the peace camp. I went to vet school. But for a lot of reasons, one of them way down the list, but it was, oh, oh, maybe this is something I can get involved in. Um, But I was out of my Army money. Uh, The vet school was 800 miles away. Texas is a huge state. And my husband was, of course, not going to leave a good job in Amarillo. 
And I hated Texas A&M, where the vet school is, horrible right-wing school. In fact, they killed a ROTC kid, and they don't even call it ROTC. They call it the core at Texas A&M, and it's yeah. even more hardcore than ROTC. And this was a second-year student, but he hadn't been there the first year, so they were hazing him real bad. And they were running him night after night, and one night he collapsed and died, and they proceeded to sweep that under the rug. <sighs> yeah, yeah. So a whole lot of reasons I didn't stay there. And really, it it was just a vague notion of, of joining on with those peace camps. But the next year was 1985, and that was the 40th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so the peace camp that year was big. It was 10 days long, a thousand attendees. They had big speakers like Ed Asner and Dan Ellsberg. And I went. And it was more than three years later before I did more than just attend meetings and slowly absorb stuff. But that's where I got my start. And to connect with VFP, because back then I don't think there were any Texas chapters, Not certainly not one in Amarillo. Um, but somebody at one of the peace camps mentioned, I, I said something or it came up in a workshop about being a veteran, and somebody said, oh, have you heard of Veterans for Peace? And that was 1988, and I joined and was just a mail-in member at that point. But later on, when my second husband and I moved to Baltimore, we got active, and it happens that the first convention or one of the first conventions after we moved to Baltimore in '97 uh, was in Arlington, Virginia, very nearby. So that was a good way to start getting acquainted and it went from there. So you uh, stuck with uh, veteran husbands? <laughs> it's just a coincidence, but yes, oh. both husbands are veterans or were veterans. Second husband's dead, unfortunately. But yeah, I I never thought of myself as coming from a military family because my dad's service was when I was an infant, uh, before I was even born and then a, a tiny baby. So I didn't have any conscious memory of it, but every one of my male relatives, my mother's father, all of my father's brothers were pilots in World War II. The only male relative for three generations is, who was not in the military, interestingly enough, was my brother. My sister and I were both them, but not our brother. Go figure. So really, I come from a very militarized family, and it it's just a coincidence, but it's a fact that both of my husbands have been veterans too. Yeah. Well, so did you uh, talk with? Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, I'm, I just want to say that I don't think it's just a coincidence, though, that you went into the military after saying that you have this long line of military service in your family, and and you know I know you went in for some specific reasons, but a big reason I heard you say was responsibility. You know, you felt like you had a responsibility to your family. Um, and I just wanted to, to say that because people, a lot of times civilians and people who don't join, don't realize just how much we're impacted by people who have gone in the military before us and our families. And we kind of soak it up and we might not even realize it. And that sense of responsibility to our families that leads us to join the military. You're absolutely right. Yes. It wasn't consciously on my mind, but yes, absolutely. It was a big impact on me. Well, I would imagine that most of your your, your uh, relatives who were veterans, too, you, there wasn't really much 
criticism of militarism or war or foreign no. policy. I don't know. No, it was sort not. of like <laughs> go get along to go along, and uh, you know. Yep. Um, Although I got to say that when I saw one of my uncles after I'd become a peace activist, and it happens that my immediate family, my parents and siblings and I, moved far away from the old home place in Georgia, out to West Texas. That's why I was out there. And so we didn't see any of those relatives very much beyond my 13th year. I was just turning 13 when we moved. So I hadn't seen any of them in ages. And I'd become this crazy peace activist, and a couple of friends, peace activist friends, and I stayed with that uncle and his wife one night just on a, a big trip we were taking. And I was a little nervous. And he was really quite supportive. He, he asked, you know, so what have you been doing? And I gave him a, a short description. He said, well, good for you. And his wife was a little touchy about it, my aunt. And yeah. it, it seemed a little odd, but then I thought, no, he was in it. He saw what crap it was. She had to stay home and justify it to herself and the kids. So it kind of made sense once I thought about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of stereotypes and assumptions. And, you know, that's what Veterans for Peace plays on with our name. Veteran for Peace. Wow. How can that be? Veterans support war, don't they? Well, no. (laughs) Yeah. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, just for peace with a capital F. I just want... (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I just have to say that because people put that small F in there all the time. So just, yes, you know. yes, it's a big F, quite right. <laughs> so how did you get uh, from Veterans for Peace to uh, some of the other organizations, particularly working with the UN and uh, or, uh, VFP's efforts with the UN? I'm not positive. Oh, actually, yes, I am. Um, I was going to say I, I wasn't sure how I met the previous head UN rep to me, but I, I do remember now. His name is Michael John Carley, and he's the son of a, a man who died in Vietnam, actually. Um, he's not a veteran himself, but he was the head UN rep before me, and he recommended that I do it is how I came to do it. But the way I met him was through the Iraq Water Project, putting that together. And, of course, he was instrumental in making connections with Iraqis and Iraqi authorities to try to set up that project to actually, during the sanctions years, go into Iraq. There were three different delegations in 2000, 2001, and 2002 that actually went and put in sweat equity working on water plants that had been bombed in the Gulf War in 1991. And, of course, after that, when the war resumed in 2003, it was far too dangerous, certainly for the delegations, but even more so for the Iraqis on the ground. Um, so you may know that the Iraq Water Project continues, but not in that same way. It's a, a fundraiser to to pay for on-the-ground Iraqis to go install uh, Water filter. Mosque or school or community yeah. center-sized water filtration devices, yeah. and we're yeah. proud that it goes on, but not yeah. in the same way. But Michael John Carley was very involved in creating that project, so that's how I met him. And, and he that was had actually, other things to go do, and so he recommended me as, as the head UN rep, and I've been doing it ever since. Okay. 
And the Iraq Water Project was actually that was started by VFP, or we we were partners with some other organization. Oh no, no, it was started by VFP. So, what is the the uh, VFP specifically doing about, uh, particularly about the the uh, UN Secretary General calling for a global ceasefire? And maybe you can tell us something about that uh, that appeal. Absolutely, I was just thrilled when I saw it come out. Uh, you may know that the the first line of the preamble of the United Nations Charter says, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. We hereby create this body, blah, blah, blah. Sadly, however, the UN, both because it was created by the victors in World War II, who have gone on to be the dominant nations in the world, ours being number one, of course, the U.S., but, you know, the the European countries, the other nuclear-armed nations, um, and because, of course, it's it's only fair because we're such a filthy rich country, even though, of course, many people are very poor in this country, but the nation has way too much money, um, owes big U.N. dues, and we play around with them and don't always even pay them, but the U.N. has to be careful in its dealings with the U.S. to get that money. And so it doesn't say a lot about war for the most part. So I was just thrilled when this statement came out that the Secretary General saying, hey, at least now, can't we please put it aside for a while? Bless him for that. Just thrilled to to hear him say that. And there are multiple petitions out there. Veterans for Peace has signed on as one of many organizational members supporting several people's petitions or statements supporting it. Um, and I'm in touch with the other reps to the UN. We're allowed to have four people who get a year-long grounds pass and can supposedly go to events at the UN. Well, not right now, obviously, but <laughs> we hope. Uh, as a matter of fact, this coming weekend was supposed to be the start of the big every five years uh, nuclear weapons non-proliferation treaty review conference. Well, we won't be doing that. There will be some online things, um, you know, because everything's shut down. The UN is not functioning as usual, but we have this relationship, and we are responsible for speaking about what the UN does and putting putting forth when they do good stuff. So that's what we're trying to do. I have spoken to the other UN reps about how might we put together a specifically VFP statement, so we're working on that. So the VFP statement, the uh, national statement, is sort of uh, in in progress. In the works, right? Yeah. Well, what would you what would you say offhand though that would be the main points of that thing relative to what VFP? I mean, we're essentially an educational organization. How do we how do we promote promote that that point of view? And uh, um, you know, what are the what are the what are the talking points of that? Well, exactly. The education is our responsibility to continue our our access to the UN, is to educate about the UN. And let me just quote you what I think is the the most inspiring line from the from Secretary General Antonio Guterres' statement. He says, "The fury of the virus illustrates the folly of war." 
That's yeah, what that's we're all about. That yeah. hallelujah is what he's saying so strongly. Let us work together to push that forward. And I do have to say that it was March 23rd when he put this statement out. It's been out a while now. And there are about seven nations that are not fully pursuing a hot war that they were at the time. We'll see how long it lasts, and it doesn't mean they've totally given up either. But that's something. Yeah, And it's not anything exactly like we've ever seen before. Um, well, you know, well, has so the United let's States actually carry it and push it? <laughs> has the U.S. actually slowed its uh, overseas wars activities down at all, as, as far as you know? Not that I know of. It is not yeah. one of the seven listed nations. <laughs> no, yeah. not surprisingly, I'm afraid. The biggest one is Yemen. Poor mm. Yemen. And this is kind of interesting. Apparently, the Saudi royal family is just awash with COVID. So that's probably part of why they backed off. But they have, and we'll see if that one sticks. And I just want listeners to know, if they don't know about this, that the Pope also has spoken out in support of uh, of this ceasefire. So there are some high-powered people who feel like this is the right thing to do. But, of course, the question is, and, and I, I saw uh, another release from the Secretary General who wanted to reiterate it and said something like, I'm obviously paraphrasing here, but yeah, it is great that people are saying they want to uh, see the ceasefire, but we need to have some action. We need to make it happen. Yes. So, yeah. yes. Uh, or, or do, you, do you know of any sort of American uh, politicians or otherwise that uh, support this? I know that uh, Tulsi Gabbard was a sole, uh, basically sole a- anti-interventionist, uh, anti-militarist person on the Democratic candidate slate. Uh, I don't know if she said anything about this, but uh, nobody, po- no, no politicians that you know of have uh, American that is have, have supported this uh, initiative. Not that I know of. Um, you know, <laughs> come on, y'all, speak up. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's horrifying, and that's a lot of what VFP tries really hard to challenge is the, the almost total warmongering nature of our entire government. <laughs> it's very frustrating. But what we can do is help educate people and make noise about it and keep pushing them. And that that also, what you say on that, no politicians have actually spoken up in support. Um, that leads me to say to our listeners that you should call, and I'll, I'll have to do this. That's right. Uh, you should call your um, your congressperson and your senator, uh, the person in the House and your senator, and say, hey, do you know about this? This is something that really needs to happen. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, locally, we could probably get our senator or representative, Pramila Jaipal. Uh, she's... Mm-hmm. She's very sympathetic, actually, to VFP. We've talked to her a few times, and uh, she's one of those people that would actually, you know, uh, say yeah, something. Yeah, she's a good she one. Proud I, I think it would not be hard to get her to put out a statement, yes. Yeah. Outside of, I mean, for VFP, do you, do you have any sort of suggestions for what, uh, I mean, I, I, that's a specific one as far as getting a hold of your, your legislators, the letter, letter writing. I mean, you've been an activist for a long time, and... Uh, You've got some specific suggestions on how sort of non-VFP people can uh, get involved in this, in addition to talking to your legislators? Well, as I said, there are multiple petitions out there. Hang on a second. I'll 
pull up my file where I can just scroll down and see. Um, Roots Action has one. Peace Action has one. Um, the uh, campaign against nuclear weapons, uh, against the arms trade, pardon me, uh, you know, they, they just go on and on. There's lots of organizations who have either put out their own statement or, or signed in conjunction with lots of others. So for heaven's sake, sign petitions, yes, call, call elected officials, um, talk with your neighbors as much as you can. <laughs> um, write letters to the editor, of course. The papers are right. still... Still going. So, the the usual. We can't march in the streets right now, but we can still make a lot of noise. And this is such a, a wonderful, uh, strong call for at least for heaven's sake, while people are dying of a, a virus that we are currently not able to to fight very well because it's new, it's novel, it's not one we've been exposed to before. So our bodies don't have any antibodies, um, at least for this period of time when everything else is so largely shut down. For heaven's sake, shut down the war machine. Right. Yeah. Well, I hope to talk to you soon again, uh, Ellen, and uh, thanks so much for being on our uh, soon-to-be world-famous Codex 96.9 radio program here based yes, in Seattle. Indeed. You can you can see that through just go to Codex ninety six point nine and take a look at or listen to our past uh, uh, shows which are pretty good. We've only been doing this for uh, what now four months. Yeah, uh, and it's and it's it's every show has been different and very very good. And thanks to people like you, guests like you, uh, it makes it a much better show. So thanks again. For and being community on radio, call. I have just. The- the highest admiration for. Thank you all so much. It's a great resource, and more of us should use it. Absolutely. Great. Okay, Thank great. you. Take Thanks, care. Ellen. Thanks, Ellen. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you to Ellen Barfield, former National Veterans for Peace Vice President and one of our current representatives to the United Nations. She's a veteran member in our Baltimore chapter. And thank you to Kelly Wadsworth, a local Seattle veteran member and pastor. Thank you both for sharing your peace activist origin story and perspectives on U.S. policies and peace. All right, we're out of time. Don't forget to listen to us again next month. I hope you like our music. It's by The Passion Hi-Fi. You can find his music at www.thepassionhifi.com. I want to give a shout out to Aurora Child. She is a co-host that can't be with us right now due to the pandemic to some pandemic responsibilities. We miss her greatly and hope to have her back soon. Don't forget to stay safe. Wash your hands often. Social distancing is important and simply take care of yourself. Remember, our individual actions impact each and every one of us. We need each other. We need every one of you. There is a lot of work to do and we need to do it together. So until next time.